0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Eating Crow. I have the pleasure of having Megan Bowen joining us today on the program. Megan, how are you?
0: I'm doing great, Pete. Thanks for having me.
1: It's a joy. And we met earlier when I, I think I just kind of harassed you on LinkedIn until you said you'd take a meeting with me. <laughs>
0: and it worked. It we had worked. a meeting. It was great.
1: <laughs> we did. We did. Yeah. So Megan, first of all, kind of give us a little, where are you from?
0: I am from Southern California. So the San Fernando Valley, right outside of LA, technically a valley girl, if (laughs) you go by that definition. I uh, moved to New York when I was 19. So I've been in New York a long time, but born and raised in uh, the valley.
1: And that's why I asked the question, because I know at 19 years old, what about the valley caused you to say, I'm going to New York?
0: So my mom worked for an airline growing up. We did a lot of traveling. My mom tells this story. I think I was nine years old. First time I went to New York City and I was walking down the street and I looked to my mom and I said, I love this place. I'm going to live here one day. And so ever since that trip, my whole teenage years, I had this like growing obsession that I was going to move to New York City and go to college. I actually kind of lost my nerve when I was in my senior year of high school, ended up applying to colleges in California. And I did my first year at San Diego State. One month in, I was like, I made a mistake. This is not what I want. And so I secretly applied to two colleges, NYU and Adelphi University for transfer the following year. And I decided not to tell anyone because I didn't want anyone to sway my uh, opinion and then ended up getting into both schools and choosing one and, and then making the move the following year. So it just took me a little extra time to work up the courage to do it.
1: <laughs> was it the fact that you had committed to yourself at a young age that you wanted to be in New York or, or was there something else about what you were studying or, or drawing you to New York?
0: So I think that I my grandfather spent a lot of time like, reading philosophy with me. And so I was very like introspective, even at like an eight, as an 18 year old, one of the things that I had really realized about myself was that most of the decisions that I made in my life were to please other people around me and to get external validation from those people. Mm -hmm. And I would consistently compromise what I actually wanted to do what other people wanted or expected of me. And part of New York was this romanticized version of it being a cool city. But what I had realized was I need to get away from everybody that I know and love. If I'm going to have any shot of building a life for myself, that's actually something that I want. I recognize that I was incapable of being surrounded by people I love and like, quote unquote, disappointing them. And so at the time, like my thought process was, I have to make this type of decision if I'm going to like find myself and like figure out what I actually want in life. Like that was really what was going on in my head. And there, you know, New York was like a cool place and all of these things, but it was like going somewhere. I didn't have any family or friends anywhere in the Northeast. And so it was really like going out on my own and... Starting over, and I could be whoever I wanted. There was nobody around me to tell me that that wasn't me.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, if you're taking notes, that's her first eating crow moment. (laughs) Yes, I need freshman at San Diego State (laughs) University, which, by the way, is in one of the most beautiful places in the world.
0: I love living in San Diego. Oh my goodness, (laughs) it's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) you get on this airplane, you fly across the country into one of the biggest cities in the world, and you know no one. So college was a kind of a great place to kind of land to get started to feel for the area. When you were at school, did you start to have a plan for what you wanted to do when you got out of school? Were there classes? Were there things you were doing? Or were you kind of just still finding yourself?
0: So I had a really interesting situation. I was supporting myself right when I moved out at 18. So I was making the move, but I had to go to school as well as get a full-time job to support myself. Um, I ended up going to Adelphi because they gave me a full ride. It was actually cheaper for me to rent a room in the city than to pay for room and board at the college. So I actually lived in uh, Harlem my first four years in New York, and I reverse commuted out to Long Island only two days a week. I crammed all my classes into two days a week. And then the other five days a week, I worked to pay my bills. And so for me, I had a very different college experience. I was just trying to get the job done essentially. And so I wasn't ever like I didn't even go to my college graduation. I wasn't very like well connected to the school itself because I wasn't really having like a traditional cause like I'm taking these classes to get a degree and I am working to support myself while I kind of get through this. I'm gonna get a degree in business and I'm gonna like break into the New York startup scene and like see what happens. My lofty goal being I'm gonna own my own business one day.
1: I've done a lot of these episodes. And a common thread for people who have done something important in their life or great in their life is they have an insane work ethic. So if you can reverse commute from Harlem to Long Island two days a week to go to school and then go back and bust your butt and work the rest of the time and still get your studies done, that's a pretty good foundation for what else you're going to do from that point forward. So I'm curious. We talked about this before we started recording. You worked for Cutco or Vector Marketing. You sold knives. A lot of yeah. people who are going to hear this have, have been sold Vector Marketing Cutco knives before. What was the thing you learned when you said you got beyond your family who would buy knives from you and you started selling them to strangers? How did you even get them to take a meeting with you? Because back then, in those days, you had to go do a meeting. You couldn't do it over Zoom. You had to go to their house and show them how to do this. How did you get them to even pay attention?
0: I think the two biggest lessons from my Cutco experience, which I've absolutely taken with me in everything that I've done in my life, is no usually just means not right now and uh persistence will get you a result maybe not the result you wanted or expected but if you got, just keep going you will make something happen <laughs> and so i think those two lessons are really like what i truly internalized and even Interviewing for my first job that I found in Manhattan, it was a receptionist position at a fancy hair salon on the Upper East Side, went to the interview, thought I killed it, called every day for two weeks to follow up. Six weeks later, I get a call, actually took a different job that was paying less come in for a second interview. I was like, what? I went back. They were like, we hired somebody else and it didn't work out, but you called every day for two weeks and left messages. And I had your name on post-it notes all over my desk. And so you're the first person I remember. <laughs> He's basically like, I didn't hire you because of the way that you look, but if you let me make you over, I'll give you a job.
1: Oh, ouch. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> and I'm going to work here. We've got some work to do. That's what it was. That was their, their welcoming line. That was the onboarding.
0: Yeah. But I was like, and then at the time, in hindsight, I like had no shame. I was just like, makes sense. Like, I'd like to give the ice cream shop two weeks' notice. And they're like, oh, we're going to need two weeks. I'm like, got it.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> but look that's, at me now. <laughs> I mean, that's such a great story. And I believe this person that you work for, didn't they become a reference for you at some point down the road as well at the hair salon? I mean, weren't they somebody that you relied on or had a, you still have a relationship with him? Isn't that correct?
0: I do. I saw him recently in August of this year. I actually got my next job. One of the clients at the salon offered me a job. And that was the job that I took afterwards, which was sort of like in a nonprofit tech office, Mm -hmm. making a lot more money, was kind of a bridge to my first New York City startup. But no, he was like my second father. And I had a wonderful experience there and actually helped him write a, a business case essentially to get a loan for a salon renovation. He was from Argentina and English wasn't his first language. And so I was helping him capture his business plan on on paper. So yeah, he was amazing. And yeah, it's a great story. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it is. I mean, you're dropped into people's lives and vice versa for a reason. It's a great, uh-huh. that's a great story. And what a deep relationship to help him grow his business for him to encourage you to move on to the next opportunity and let you grow. That's that's wonderful. So I mean, there's a theme in your career, which is Something I want to tap into now, you have this passion for customer service and not only the customers of your company, but even your own people as your team and your customer, enabling them to be successful. So what is it about how you're wired that makes you think about the client and your team? A lot of your content is related around this topic, right? And it it starts internally. There has to be a, a theme and a culture that allows you to be successful. Where did you start to pick this up?
0: Yeah, I think that pretty early in my career, I really realized how much of business is people, relationships, perception, individual people's motivation. It, mm-hmm. you know, Of course, that there's lots of things beyond people that are required to build successful companies, um, but that so much of what really matters comes down to working with people effectively. And I think I've always been a people person. I've always been highly empathetic. I have an ability to very quickly read a room, assess where someone is at, or ask the right questions to assess where they're at. And I I feel like sometimes this comes off as like manipulative, which is not my intent, but like really understand what that person is trying to get out of the situation Mm -hmm. and like ultimately Take control of scenarios to like move us forward and whatever that means for the scenario. And I think that that particular skill set, whether in sales, whether as an account manager, whether as a people leader, whether as like a business leader, whether you're like raising money or dealing with the churn threat, like that's like a core skill that you can use in all of these different scenarios. And I think that I also had experiences where people, leaders, took the time to see me and hear me, give me space, create space, treat me in that way, and how differently I responded to that than people that didn't. And I think for me, it was realizing that I had a strong skill set here and that if I spent time honing and cultivating it, that that would be one of my primary strengths that I bring to the table. On the other side, if we go back to like another eating crow moment it's all well and good if you're empathetic and you have high emotional intelligence but that taken too far that can also be a bad thing mm-hmm. and so i've definitely like gone too far on the other side there and i've had to like recalibrate to a healthy place it's really interesting when you're really empathetic that if you're not creating enough healthy boundaries for yourself or protecting yourself you can take on the emotion of others in a way that's destructive to everybody involved. There's a lot of positives. It's like a hot topic these days. And I do write a lot about it, but I think that, and I'm not perfect, but I think I've gotten to a bit of a better balance these days because I have (laughs) kind of taken it to the extremes where it can be negative. So knowing really how to leverage that superpower in a way that is for good
1: and not for evil. So this brings me to a question, which occurred to me as I was watching some of your content. Now, you're in a situation where you're growing a company rapidly. You're building a large team. So to do that rapidly requires a pretty solid interview process. You got to identify and try to relate to people early on. But once they get on board, then you've got to develop them. And there's going to be some situations where maybe people didn't quite work out like you'd hoped for either reason, right? Maybe it wasn't what they thought. It wasn't what you thought. So I'm going to drill back into something you said earlier where you can be in a situation. Let's let's take, for example, I want you to kind of walk me through how you'd handle this. Let's say you're sitting in front of one of your new, new account managers. They've been there six months. It's not working, right? You've been coaching them. They're just not quite getting there. And they're not sitting in front of you. They're not connecting with what you're trying to tell them. They're interpreting and seeing things a different way, which you've identified, right? You have this knack where you go, I think what they're thinking and trying to accomplish isn't where we need to be. How do you get them to get centered and say, hey, look, Pete, we're not seeing eye to eye here. Let me explain to you my position. How do you do that in a way that either A, politely sends them out the door, or B, recalibrates them and gets them to stay and perform?
0: It's a great question. I've had this scenario happen a few times in my career. So my first approach would be to try to help the person come to the conclusion on their own. That is the most powerful way to part ways with someone is when both people sort of mutually come to that conclusion independently, and then can talk about it and make a plan to go forward. It's a very nuanced dialogue to have. And I think that it comes down to asking the right questions to really help someone think more intentionally and deliberately about what they actually want and need and if those wants and needs are being met. And so that typically is my first approach. And it's not like, I'm just going to tell you what I think and I want you to accept my perception. It's, I want to spend some time really understanding where you're at. Can I ask you a few questions, some of which might be a little sensitive, but with the goal being, I want what's best for you. And I want us to kind of explore something that might be a little uncomfortable to really understand what matters here and what matters most to you. And so asking questions like, what do you love about your day? What do you hate about your day? Do you like coming to work? Do you feel this is a good fit? If you could do anything, what would that be? Those types of questions and trying to separate it a little bit from the job, but clearly what you're kind of talking about. Mm -hmm. So that approach generally has worked well. What I find is when the person can come to that conclusion on their own, and then it becomes a mutual discussion of how we can transition. So it's a win-win for both sides. um, You have the most amicable situation in that regard. If that doesn't work, or if they're not, they have blinders on, and they're not seeing it, then that's when I will revert back to like, approach number two, which is directly communicating what my perception is and asking them what they think about it. And that becomes a bit of a more difficult dialogue of, Mm -hmm. I don't think this is the right fit. This is why I think that I might be missing some context, or you might have other things going on in your personal life that could be impacting what's happening here. But I wanted to be clear and direct that What's happening right now isn't sustainable. So we have to figure out what has to change for it to get back on track. That could be changes that have you stay here, but with a different set of circumstances, or those could be changes where you're not here anymore. So I try to do approach number one, but then approach number two is the fallback there. But what I found is like, if you can't swing approach number one, you just have to be direct, honest, And you have to give people a chance to respond to you. There are three sides to every story, right? Just because you perceive something in a certain way doesn't mean that that's the absolute truth either.
1: By the way, I don't know where you learned that. If it's something you put together on your own after experience, or if someone taught you, you went through a really good mentoring program. That was a bit of a master class for five minutes. So we're going to call this section out of the podcast when we... Tell people to pay attention to it. A little micro video. Yeah, a little micro video. We're going to definitely do that. I think a couple of words, and I shouldn't be doing the talking, but I want to highlight a couple of things for people to take notes on. One of the very first things you said was, this is my perception of the situation. What a wonderful thing to say to someone you're sitting in front of to say, this is how it's being perceived. It may not be accurate, but based on what I'm seeing, and you mentioned, there's things I may not know. The other thing that's so brilliant about what you did in the first step, number one, is you'll be able to use all the information you gathered there during number two here's what i'm seeing and the fact that you said your favorite job would be chief cook and bottle washer and right now you're an accountant that may be why we have an alignment problem let's talk about what your goals are and what you're currently doing and maybe we can adjust that situation so so good on that megan there were so many things in there that it's not taught anywhere i've been leading companies and been at big companies no one ever sat me down and had that conversation and said hey pete here's how you have these difficult conversations now i've worked with some really talented hr people who Definitely give me some guidance, but the gut instinct that you showed there was great. So I appreciate you sharing that. Let's talk about your move. You mentioned earlier you wanted to become an entrepreneur, lead your own company. So let's shift shift gears for a second and and talk about kind of where you went from that first kind of tech company nonprofit, and and you ended up at Zocdoc. Tell me about Zocdoc.
0: Yeah. So yeah, in between both of those, I was an account manager for seven years at an ed tech company called eChalk and sort of hit a wall there. And so I was applying to all sorts of jobs, found ZocDoc. It was early days was so 2012. I was like, booking your doctor's appointment online. This is genius. This is how everyone's going to do it in the future. Right. And I had a really funny interview experience there. I interviewed for three different roles, 25 people. And then they came back and offered me a job as a customer support agent, which was not one of the roles that I interviewed for. (laughs) And I was like, I didn't interview for that. And they're like, we know we really like you, but like, we just think you should start there and like, see what happens. And so I said, okay. And this was a time where I took a, like a 60% pay cut. I went wow. from being like a senior account manager to having like a quota to, you know, having a headset and responding to emails and phone calls all day long. But I knew I wanted to change. I was excited. I'm like, it's a startup start here and something's going to change. Right. And that's what happened. I was on the phone for nine months and I was watching how uh, they just kept hiring more and more support agents because we were having more and more of the same problems as we were onboarding more doctors and more patients were using the service. And so I basically took my personal experience on the front lines, synthesized the core problems that we were seeing and recommended that they build out a post-sale function, which didn't exist at the time. They had sales, they had product and tech, and customer support. And I was like, your sales team is just randomly throwing doctors up on the website. No one, no one's taking ownership of the setup. And we're having all of these issues with canceled appointments and all these things. And so I basically put forth like a business case for the creation of this team, what it would solve for, how it would impact churn and the patient and doctor experience. And it took me like 2 to 3 months of internal campaigning. I got locked. No, 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 not now. No. Go back to your desk. Oh, <laughs> Eventually, they said, "You're right. We have to do this." And they said, "You've been talking about this for 3 months. Do you want to do it?" And I'm like, "Yes. This is why I'm here." <laughs> and then I built out the post-sale function in 18 months. Team of 0 to 25 process systems, everything from the ground up. It was an incredible experience. And that was my first time building a team. And that's when I realized I love building something from nothing. And I love leading a team. That was when I really realized that that was what got me really excited.
1: And then you went to Grubhub, which was you know, still kind of even 2016, I wouldn't say it was necessarily really early, but it was still pretty early.
0: Yeah. So I joined Grubhub and Seamless, it was actually in like the spring of 2014. It was after their merger pre IPO. Seamless was headquartered in New York, Grubhub in Chicago. Seamless had a huge B2B business, okay. which was how the company was created. And so they had no B2B account management function. And so I was recruited to basically create the B2B account management team. And I was super excited, took the role, and basically built up the team in the first 18 to 24 months, post-IPO. Uh, Grubhub went on an acquisition spree and just acquired all of these other B2B food tech companies. So my final two years there, I consolidated all five acquired B2B companies, the customer base and the internal team over to the core Grubhub platform. That was probably the biggest scale that I have seen. I joined and there was about 3,000 customers, 200 million uh, annual recurring revenue business, And then when I left, we had about 9,000 customers, over 500 million ARR. And a lot of that growth through acquisition, but also through organic net new sales and customer expansion. And so really great ride there. Basically, the company got really big. I joined when there was like maybe 400 or 500 people. And then there was like 2,500. And I was like, I miss building at small companies again. So then that's when I moved on to my next chapter.
1: And what is it about the small company vibe that That gets you excited? Is it the scale piece or is it the fact that you're kind of wearing different hats?
0: I think that one of my best talents is resourcefulness and like my perseverance and grit. I think I'm kind of like jack of all trades, master of none, a little bit. Like I can do just about anything that has to get done, I can figure it out. I like that piece. And like that's what gets me going of like, building something from the ground up, painting a compelling reason why people should join you on the journey, figuring stuff out from scratch, like not just relying on what someone tells you to do, but like doing something in the way that you think it could be done better. I just love that building period. I don't know. I just feel like the most challenging, I guess. There are lots of challenges to scale a business, so not to diminish that at all, but the set of challenges in the building phase is just really excites me. And I like to have crazy things that I have to figure out and like make it happen.
1: <laughs> you, you like bring, bringing some, uh, some peace to chaos, right? So yes. Got it. You said painting the picture for, for new hires, right? So getting people to want to join that team with you, especially during that chaotic period. What have you learned as you've built out these teams? And by the way, for those of you who have never worked in customer service, customers don't often call to say, Hey, Megan, your team's doing a great job call with problems and they're typically not happy when they call. So the level of urgency is it's got to happen right now. Uh, You have a basic set of tools in your toolbox and you have to, like you said, figure it out. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking for talent on a client facing team, you know, what are the things that you're looking for and trying to tease out in an interview process?
0: I actually try to spend more time in an interview process, understanding the candidate and what they want, what they're good at, what they're looking for in their next step values alignment, vision and mission alignment is really number one for me. Of course, there needs to be a level of hard skills or experience that are relevant to any particular role. So that's definitely important. Um, I think for some roles more important than others as well. Kind of the intangible of that resourcefulness and perseverance and, and grit. Because what I find is If people, if your values aligned and people are bought into the vision and the mission, and they have some of those intangibles that you can't teach and the requisite hard skills so that they feel set up for success to do a good job, that's what actually matters the most and that they want to be there. This is what I always tell people in interviews or sales calls like, my job is not to convince you to take a job here or to hire us and to be a client. My job is to have an honest conversation about whether it's going to be a good fit for both sides. And that's for customers. It's for team members all around. And so like, I'll talk about the hard parts of the job or what we haven't figured out yet or the challenges that we're currently facing that they'll probably have to deal with too. I want people to know what they're getting into. And so those are the things that I assess for, but I try to paint an honest picture of what clients, team members, anyone should expect because I don't want people to make a decision. I would rather not hire someone I need than make a decision that isn't going to be a good fit for the long term. Sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that more often than not, people don't leave a job for the tactical things. They leave a job for fit, culture. They don't believe in the mission anymore, the values. They can't get any more. They're not energized. So even if they might be the absolute right technical person for the job, they're just mm-hmm. not feeling it. I think that happens more often than not. Let's fast forward a little bit to Refine Labs. Describe to us how you got there. It's a pretty interesting story how you and and the team kind of all connected, got on board. And what what was the connection with you and Chris that decided to make this work?
0: Yeah. So um, it's funny. I started being really active on LinkedIn in 2019. Mm-hmm. I was at a company called Managed by Q, and I originally got on LinkedIn um, and like posted content because my CEO at the time was giving me a lot of shit for not being able to recruit fast enough. <laughs> And so I was like, fine, I'm going to like, I'm going to like get more active on LinkedIn to talk about the company and like, as like kind of like an employer branding recruiting play. Right. Sure. Um, so that was my original goal, d- posting content on LinkedIn. And it worked. Um, it helped a lot with some recruiting for that company over the course of that year. Me and Chris first met by like commenting on each other's posts back in 2019. This was before mm-hmm. he was like really LinkedIn famous. i like, he is today. And then I think it was October, it was the fall of 2019. He had reached out and said, Hey, I'm kind of doing like some video podcasting. You want to like do a couple episodes with me? So I said, I'd never done that before. I'd done like panels or in-person conferences. I was like, yeah, like that sounds cool. Let's do it. So we did a couple of Zoom podcasts essentially and then right before the pandemic, he said I'm coming to New York. I have like a film crew, can we sit down and do like like high production like in-person interview. I was like, okay, like you're coming down here, let's do it. So that was when we first met in person was February 2020. And so we had uh we did like a cool like whole interview. It was a lot of fun. It was really interesting. So I Managed by Q was acquired by WeWork and I was the COO during the M&A and uh, there was a lot of drama with WeWork. So it took me about a year to actually collect my acquisition payment. And so in literally in a matter of 5 days, 3 things happened. This is why I feel like the universe like was, it was, was meant to be. I decided I was going to quit the job that I took after Q. The pandemic negatively impacted the business. I had to lay off my team. I was just done. And yeah. so I quit that job. I finally got this WeWork money, which gave me some comfort in the middle of a pandemic, quitting a job with nothing lined up. Worst case scenario, I would be okay. And my intention was to maybe think about doing my own consulting. And then Chris reaches out, hey, friend, do you have 10 minutes to chat? (laughs) And uh, we get on a call a couple days later. And actually, I wrote back to him, and I was like, "Oh, Chris just started his own company. Hey, can we like extend it a little bit longer than ten minutes? I'd love to like pick your brain about a couple things." Oh, sure, why not? He asked me, "You know, anyone in CS or a COO? I'm looking for like someone to help scale the company." And I was like, "Oh, I'll, I'll look through my network. I'll." let you know, I'll keep it in mind. And then I was like, and he's like, all right, what's, what's up with you? And I was like, well, I quit my job. And I'm thinking of starting my own thing. And like, you just kind of did that. What's your journey been like? What's worked? What hasn't worked? I think I'm going to start making that happen for myself. I've wanted to be a business owner. And now I think is the time. And he was like, oh, let's just team up. <laughs> let's do it together. So we have several more conversations after that, but then really the stars just kind of aligned. We said, let's give it a shot and see what happens. I think that we quickly realized we're both very different people, but we share a lot of the same values and the same like, long-term vision of wanting to like influence a dramatic change and impact in the B2B landscape and how companies scale growth and execute marketing. For me, it's even broader than that of how they think about building a company, treating their team Chris cares about those things too. We kind of want that to do the same, have the same impact, and we have highly complementary skill sets. So let's give it a shot and see what happens. So that's the story.
1: <laughs> and describe, you know, when you got there, how big was the company and, and where is it today?
0: It was pretty early days. So there was about six or seven team members. There was about, I think maybe nine or 10 customers paying us about 10K per month. This was like summer of 2020. hmm And not even a year and a half later, we have almost 55 employees, 40 customers. Our prices have increased to 35 to 45K a month as our services have expanded. And I've been at a lot of really cool startups and companies in my career. I have never, ever seen the speed of growth that we have here. That is also 100% inbound. It's pretty insane and crazy. I joke with my team internally. I'm like bragging a little bit, but I'm like, Harvard Business School is going to write a case study about Refine Labs one day.
1: They are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you guys are eating, Chris is eating his own dog food, right? He's created, he's created a bunch of demand and people come to him now because he's the SME for digital marketing and he's flipped it on its head.
0: Exactly. Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's when I started to notice, Chris, because I was in the digital marketing world at the time and, mm-hmm. you know, I was seeing things differently and there was this one guy out there that kept on saying, kind of what I was thinking. And I'm like, but when I look at customers, they look at us cross-eyed. I'm like, what are you talking about? Why would you do that? And I'm like, well, there's this guy, Chris Walker. He kept on saying, this is right. You know, we ended up sending people to, to refine labs, I think is what happened. But, <laughs> so when you think about accelerating growth, the way you guys have and, and the ability to set your price point, you know, when you put together the team and, and you've had to add a lot of services, right? So you're bringing in some people with very specific sets of skills. In addition to some people who are like you, Jacks of All Trades, and you're doing this all remote, correct? Yes. How do you guys handle that? What is the communication like? How do you do the onboarding? How do you reach out and hug someone on their first day and you know, give them their, their koozie and their t-shirts? What is that like?
0: I think that it was really interesting because we saw so much of the scale and really like the height of the pandemic. And it was interesting because a lot of people had lost their jobs and were laid off. And I think people also were just because of life circumstances, very like starved for just like genuine human connection. Mm-hmm. And so basically, my like philosophy is that people's success is customer success is company success, and that your number one priority is your team. And just like any good customer success pro would say, like customer onboarding is the most important milestone in the customer journey. It's pretty similar when you look at your team as well. And so the first thing that I did before I designed like our onboarding for our team members was what am I trying to achieve here? Mm-hmm. There are table stakes things like we need to get them set up with equipment and tools to enable them to do their job. We need to train them on our strategy and like the key things that they need to know to deliver our service. Right. But almost more importantly, in my opinion, how do I want them to feel at the end of day one, at the end of week one, at the end of month one. Right. And so I was really thoughtful about it. And so I said, okay, at the end of the first day, the overwhelming feeling I want them to have is I made the right choice. Because that's everyone's first day, right? I hope I made the right choice. <laughs> Let me see what this is about. And so I wanted the experiences that they had on the first day to provide like extreme validation that this was the right choice for them. At the end of the first week, I wanted people to feel I can be my true self here. I am accepted, mm. I am respected, I can show up as all of me at work. Mm. And at the end of the first month, I want them to feel like I am ready to go. I understand what it's like to work here. I am set up for success and I'm so excited to do the best work of my life. And so I started with the end in mind. These are the milestones that I want them to feel. And if I can get everybody to feel those things at those time, then I've done what I can do based on what I can control to To get the team off to a good start. And so it's being really thoughtful about who are they meeting with on their first day, intro meeting with Chris and to get super excited about the vision, right? We always have our team meetings on the first day. So they get to see everyone and see what a team meeting is like. They get to meet with their manager. It's not overscheduled. We're not like death by PowerPoint. They have an opportunity to, to meet with some other peers. And I personally will check in with everyone on their first day to make sure that they have what they need. And it was a good first day. We, they spend time with someone on our team to get them all set up with their equipment, which we send to them in advance and sure. everything all good. It seems like a nice to have, but in a remote setting, like people's shit needs to work yeah, <laughs> and you need absolutely. to make sure. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. So I don't, I can go on if needed, but that's like my, how I think about onboarding specifically is really anchoring on like, what am I really trying to make them feel like? And what are the, what are the things that I can control Ideally, get me to that outcome.
1: So let's go back to something you had said earlier in, in the podcast, which is you're looking for people that buy into the mission and the vision. So when you're thinking about, and this is going to be a little bit of a, as we wrap this thing up, a, a bit of a commercial for Refine Labs, which I'm totally fine with because I'm a big fan. What is it about Refine Labs that's changing the way people think of B2B digital marketing? What's the core vision and mission that you guys are bringing to the market?
0: Yeah, our entire philosophy is a complete departure of how the majority of B2B companies execute and measure marketing today. It is rooted in the reality that B2B buying and selling has dramatically changed in the last 10 years, yet, none of the actual tactics and strategies that people deploy have. And so, everything that we do is acknowledging the reality that the power is in the hands of the buyer information is so easily accessible Mm -hmm. that if you're not providing it, people are moving on. They don't even accept jumping through hoops to get information today because most companies or not not most, but the smart ones are smart about just giving away their content for free. And then really architecting those, those strategies rooted in common sense, doing what's best for your customer, and... Meeting buyers where they're at and where they're learning and making decisions. It's so obvious, but like most things that feel obvious to a small group, like in 10 years from now, there will be the next frontier that we're going after, right? And a lot of people will have caught up to this. It's surprising how many people don't like to change.
1: (laughs) It very much is. And when you think about where the company is going to be in three to five years, it doesn't have to be a headcount goal, but what do you guys think you're doing from a market size? I mean, is this thing growing to a couple hundred million dollars? I mean, what are your thoughts?
0: I think the the way that I'll answer this question is, I think that we believe we have a really unique perspective in the market. We have a very differentiated strategy that most people are not adopting. We're actually executing on that strategy with all of our customers. And so you think of really large like analyst firms like Gartner, this and that, who... Mm -hmm position themselves as the thought leaders of putting out these industry reports and all of these recommendations that lots of CMOs will pay thousands and thousands of dollars for and essentially take what they're saying as Mm -hmm. word and run and implement it without really putting the pieces together that that's a pay to play. Oh, Mm -hmm. you have to buy ABM software if you're going to be a successful CMO when it like sure it can help but it's not needed. Right. And so what we are really building towards is given that we not only have our proprietary strategy but we're actually doing the work and collecting the data and validating what's working and what's not working and constantly evolving our approach mm-hmm. is we'll actually have unbiased evidence-based data to support the strategies that we're putting out and that beyond our consulting business we'll find other avenues to communicate that information to have a much broader impact across the b2b landscape so that more and more companies can adopt these strategies and start growing much more sustainably so i think that's really like the big the big vision is the consulting business is one way to achieve that goal but there are a lot of other really interesting avenues we are really the only strategy, research, and execution firm. I wouldn't compare us to another media agency or a marketing agency. We're very different from that. And it's the combination of those three components and having them feed into one another that I think really differentiates what we're doing and the potential impact that we can have as a result.
1: If you were to think about where you get, you, you mentioned this a couple of times, this resourcefulness and this grit. Does it come from your family? Does it come from your parents? Does it come from a mentor? Does it come from your, from your favorite superhero athlete? Where do you think it comes from?
0: You know, I think the answer is like not glamorous and maybe a little sad and pathetic.
1: <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> but, what we're going for in eating crow. A little sad and pathetic.
0: And this is like my biggest personal Mount Everest, if you will, that I am, I am summiting every day. I goes back to why I had to come to New York to like figure out what my life was going to be. I have this ridiculous need to be externally validated, and I'm incapable of giving myself the internal validation that is needed. And so I really believe that I have cultivated and honed this skill as a way to continually receive the external validation that I thought I needed which would feel good for a minute and then not feel good anymore. And I I still recognize that I will only really get that true satisfaction with internal validation, but that's easier said than done to really let that thing go and kind of get to that level of Zen. So I'm working on it and I'll like, that's kind of my, my core area of, of personal development. And when I'm not at my best, I revert back to making decisions and doing things to get that. Dopamine hit, so I think that I really think that that's
1: <laughs> that that's the the core reason of why well, that wasn't sad and pathetic at all It was insightful First of all, if you can diagnose it, that's a huge, huge leap, right There's a lot of people sitting there wondering why they don't feel a certain way. But yeah. If you can diagnose it, then you can like you said you've adapted your behaviors, your surroundings, your environment. To give you what you need externally while you kind of work on the continuous project. And by the way, I think all of us will work on that project the rest of our lives. I think everyone yeah. has a bit of that. No <laughs> question. Well, if you're looking for a momentary bit of uh, external validation, uh, there's a reason we asked you on the podcast and nobody's going to be disappointed. It was, it was a fantastic episode, Megan.
0: This was great. I love the Eating Crow <clears throat> theme. I feel like very original and unique in well, thank you. podcasting. Yeah.
1: Thank you. We're, we're trying. And uh, best of luck to you and Chris. It's fun to watch from the outside how things are growing and the content you guys, you guys are eating your own dog food, you're practicing your own practice and it's working. So I'm sure more will take notice and uh, we're very grateful to have you on the show.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks, Megan. It's been great. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video.